Welcome to VitFriends Podcast, Living Life and Love. I'm your host, Mark Braxton from Raleigh, North Carolina. VitFriends is a national vitiligo support community founded by Valerie Molino. For information about VitFriends, classes, support groups for youth, teens, and adults, visit us at www.vitfriends.org. For questions or comments, you can email us at support at vitfriends.org. Friends podcasts are now sponsored by my vitiligo team. Welcome to Living Life and Love. I'm your host, Mark Braxton from Raleigh, North Carolina. So on today's show, I have a very special guest that is Allison Kalu. And welcome, Allison. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate being able to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad you're able to uh, be on my show. We're going to have a great discussion. So I know a lot of times the listeners want to know, hey, what's the topic about? Well, we're going to have a great discussion about clinical trials and uh, some of the myths and um, some of the, I guess, positive aspects of clinical trials, and maybe even talk about some of the negative aspects, things that make someone not want to um, be a part of one. However, we're going to spin this and make it a positive um, event for all of us, you know, those who participate in clinical trials or those who are thinking about it. So before we get started, I want you to officially introduce yourself, tell us where you're from, and maybe what organization you represent. Sure. My name is Allison Kalu. I am a native Washingtonian because I was raised primarily in D.C. However, I was born in North Carolina, in Durham, at Duke University Hospital, to be awesome. precise. <laughs> Yeah, so I I claim both places as home. Oh, good, good. Both my parents were from Granville County, but I ended up being raised in D.C. and ended up coming back to North Carolina for college. I am an Eagle, Eagle Pro. Uh, that, yeah, NCCU. Uh, that's <laughs> one of those HBCUs that's central. And, um, you know, we have the, the, the Eagle and the Bear. So, you know, you have to decide which one is better. But mm, yeah, we I, won't talk about those Aggies. Anywho. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm talking about the Shaw University Bears. Um, <laughs> but as I tell people, there was no you before Shaw U. But anyway, we're not going to go there. <laughs> Look, respect across yes. all of our sister Absolutely. colleges. Right? Absolutely. Right? Sister and brother colleges. Yeah, there's much love and much respect between all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So at the time when I was a student, I basically followed in my mom's footsteps. She had been a student and had graduated with a bachelor's and a master's both from NCCU. Well, at the time it was North Carolina College at Durham. So I was a legacy student when I enrolled and matriculated. And I also followed in her footsteps with regard to what I majored in, which was biology. And initially, um, I had my sights set on being a clinician and studying medicine. And, well, there was a series of events that took place that kind of dissuaded me from from that course of events or that path. And I ended up um, deciding to study public health afterwards. And so I went to New Haven and ended up spending more than the two required years (laughs) matriculating there. and spent much of my early adult life in the Northeast. That's how I ended up being in Connecticut for a while. And at that time, I had worked in public health around the the New Haven Health Department, at Yale School of Medicine, in the AIDS program, and had been a study coordinator there. Uh, That was my first introduction to clinical trials from the workspace perspective. 
Um, if I dial back, I will share with you that my mom, while she was a scientist, she was also the first person that I knew who was a clinical trial participant. She, this may um, come as a bit of a shock, but she was also one of Anthony Fauci's patients at the NIH. Awesome. She participated in one of his landmark AZT trials. When I was a freshman, the, the summer following my freshman year, she had open heart surgery and was transfused with bad blood, shall we say. Wow before blood was being tested for HIV. And so we ended up with this unforeseen um, journey that ultimately took her life. But in the interim, she was determined to make a difference. And she knew participating in the study was not going to save her life, right. but that it would contribute to the data. So the fact that she was a scientist who believed in the science enough to volunteer right. was huge. It was huge. And um, obviously left <laughs> an enormous impact on me right. and planted a seed about what needed to take place and and the lack of representation of people of color in studies was obvious it was it was huge hugely apparent even then in a practical observational kind of way because most of the people that we saw um were not people of color right. my mother was was one of very few people who um, looked like us who were participating in that particular study, at least. Um, my mother was also, had been a social um, activist and was very cognizant of health disparities. And I can remember distinctly the issue of Tuskegee being Right, absolutely. Because the article that came out in the Washington Times at the time that was, you know, that blew the top off and, and exposed the study was written up and my mother clipped it and put it on the refrigerator. And we talked about how that had impacted the impressions of people of color about research and how the exploitation was going to impact science and so on, how, it, how things were gonna be affected downstream because of that misstep, because of that atrocity. And so all of these things were omnipresent in my mind and really impacted how I wanted to move about in my life. Um, and on this planet and how I wanted to make it a difference. So while I had created opportunities for myself um, in workspaces, in public health, I'm also in probably intrinsically an entrepreneur and a creative, and I needed to find a way to combine those two things. So fast forward. <laughs> okay. 
I created my own company called Clinical Ambassador, which is the intersection of messaging around why it's important for representation and equity and inclusivity um, for people of color to participate in clinical trials and for the industry writ large to be accountable for, for access and making sure that they're not in our way in terms right. of, of creating better outcomes and opportunities, because there is no doubt that we don't get to experience better outcomes and better access to care without the element of data that comes from clinical trials. Right. There's no shortcut. It does not happen um, spontaneously. And the things that people pray about in terms of better treatments and um, cures for diseases will not fall from the sky. It right. doesn't work that way. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the science is what contributes to those things. And without people, actual individuals, human beings, to step up to participate in studies, we'll never make a difference. We'll never get to that endpoint that we're all looking for. And Absolutely. one of the major contributing factors to health disparities is the fact that when we are seen in clinical settings, by primary care physicians, by specialists, they're working basically in the blind, in, in the dark. They're working blind because there is no data, very, very little to go on with regard to what works best, what's safe and effective, what's the best dosage for people of color. Is it the same? Is it not? Right. Who, who really knows? And we don't know what we don't know. Therefore, it's, it's critical, it's crucial that we confront the issue of having to show up for this. Right, absolutely. But the flip side is we have to hold industry's feet to the fire to make them accountable for better protocol design, design that does not bar us at the door. And I say that because many times protocols um, have inclusion, exclusion criteria Right. that speak to comorbidities, meaning conditions that you show up with, that you've had already, that they go, oh no, sorry, if you have lupus, if you have right. diabetes, if you have high right. pressure, if you, you know, just name it, then sorry, you can't take part in the study. Well, um, first of all, that is because we suffer from disproportionate disease burden, right. more likely to impact our ability to participate. But also, if, if they are successful in getting the numbers of people that they want in the study, they're not gonna be us, first of all. Right. But how realistic is the data going to be? And, and when they release this, whatever this product is, whether it's a compound or a device into the larger public sp space, into the patient market, who's gonna be able to take it? So there, there are a lot of, there's a lot at stake and there are more stakeholders in this equation. And I'm here for all of that. 
That's awesome. a very long-winded introduction. But, but you know what? That is <laughs> that is the perfect introduction. It's a lot of lot of information there to dissect. Um, but I, I think everything you said is very important. We needed to hear your personal story. We need to understand um, what the data is talking about. You know, some of the issues we have with the data. Um, you mentioned something, and we're going to kind of dance around a little bit with some of my uh, bullet points. Um, Pre-existing okay. conditions. I noticed, excuse me, when you sign up for uh, a clinical trial, they ask you about 40 or 50 different conditions you could possibly have. And, and I think sometimes as people of color, you you get a little leery about, do I check this off, right? Yeah, Because now they're going to look at me and say, hey, I have this other condition that, like you say, may disqualify you for that. But now they're going to look at you a little differently because, hey, you say you have diabetes or you have asthma or you have allergies. And if sometimes I wonder, what does it have to do with the trial that I'm, I'm wanting to participate in? You know? Yeah. But I also feel like we as people, based on history, we are very careful. We're very cautious about being a part of a trial. And I say that, and, and I'm going to ask you a quick question after that. Um, okay. I've, I've had people say to me, because I participate in asthma studies. I've been doing that for about 10 years. I love it. Yeah. However, I've had friends say, why are you being a guinea pig? And I'm going, well, it's not so much being <laughs> a guinea pig. However, when scientists are, or researchers are working on those rats or guinea pigs, they need humans to find out if this medication is going to work. Right. You know? Where's the so, proof come from? Right, absolutely. So I feel like, yes, I'm willing to take this risk if it's going to help somebody else in the future. You know? I'm so glad you brought that up because it's it's so salient. It's something that needs to be confronted continuously. Right. Uh, first of all, my narrative is this. What is life without risk? Right. Absolutely. Guarantees don't exist. If you're looking for a guarantee, sorry, they don't exist. So let's let's just, you know, get rid of that kind of fantasy, first of all. And then the, the concept of, of being a guinea pig is worrisome to me because in part, based on what I, I said earlier, and that is that when we show up to our doctors, we don't know that what they're giving us, what they're prescribing is going to be effective. Right. Could be even dangerous. And more often than not, okay, there's, there's a whole diatribe about <laughs> clinical care. Right. But I'll, I'll try to keep it succinct. Our physicians are always in a hurry. Right. It's rare that they take the time to really do a deep dive um, we can't be sure that when we show up with whatever our symptoms are or our chronic condition is, that they have done any recent review of literature to see if they're up to date, to see if anything that they've been doing needs to be challenged, right? right. So I say that to say, on any given day, I feel like more of a guinea pig, if you will, in a clinical, in a regular clinical setting Absolutely. than I do in a clinical trial because the physicians are not being monitored in the way 
that the study officials are. Absolutely. And I feel personally safer in the context, in the setting of a clinical trial, because I know the scrutiny is so right. intense because they want to make sure that Tuskegee doesn't happen again and, and they get accused of exploiting people again. So give me a clinical trial any day. You know, to add to it, um, I, I'm thinking about the asthma trials I attend. I've received the best care ever. And for our listeners, yes, I receive from the clinical trial yes. the best care ever. Mm -hmm. They will call me and ask me, how am I doing? When this pandemic happened, they said, let me get your prescriptions updated immediately. Get on this. We need you wow. on that. You know, yep. have you had any issues? You know, you go oh. in, they'll check you out. They do a full battery of tests. Right? Yeah, everything. And, and I feel safer with them, as you said, safer with them because the doctor would go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He may, he or she may look at you, ask you some questions and walk out. Right. I'm on the mission. You're lucky if they sit down, right? Right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it is different. And I think it was one of the best decisions I, I've ever made because before that, um, you know, I have asthma for my listeners. Yes, I have asthma. Um, it is not as serious as some other conditions, uh, some other people with um, the same condition. However, it's serious enough that I have to keep an inhaler with me. Okay. But going to them, I learned so much more about where it, what triggers it. Mm. Grass, yeah. trees, pollen, everything that's out here in nature. So yeah. for me, I've learned a lot more because going to my doctor, it, they didn't ask any of those questions. They didn't run the proper test. It was just kind of mm -hmm. like, hey, mm -hmm. try this. Just kind of glazed over the, the surface. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh... So let's back up a little bit. My question okay. is, can you give us a little more details of what clinical trials are? Because I'm sure we have a listener somewhere saying, I don't know what that is. I don't know what a clinical trial is. Okay. So clinical trials in general are the scientific method by which scientists, investigators, researchers, and some cl clinicians who are also investigators go about systematically finding out what new investigational drug, device, uh, vaccine is safe and effective. And it goes through a process um, clinical trials are preceded by lab research, which is then followed by animal research. And if that's successful, whoever is promoting or sponsoring the research will have to apply to the FDA for permission to run the study. They submit an application and, and, and it's a long drawn out process, but then they're able to, with FDA's approval, um, start the process of first in human studies. Those are called phase one studies. And those are conducted on a very small number of people to just to see, you know, how people react. Is this safe? Um, we, we did it at this dose. What happens at that dose? You know, and if they produce data that is consistent with success, then they're allowed at each step of the way to go to the next step. Um, and ultimately a phase three study is in people. Okay, let me go back. So phase one studies are in um, healthy volunteers. Right. Just to check safety and efficacy, um, safety, sorry, 
of the study of the the drug or whatever's being tested. And then if that's successful, um, the phase two study is with a larger number of people. And then they're looking at efficacy at varying doses. And then phase three studies are another bump up in the number of people who are in them. And it's looking at comparing whatever that new investigational product is against the standard of care, if there is one. Right, right. So is this better than what we're using right now, is the question. And if it is found to be safe and effective across all of these phases of the study, then um, the sponsor will apply for uh, a new drug application to get it approved to to be released into the marketplace and it's at that point that we get these new products so the clinical trial process is intrinsic to being able to have new things on the marketplace that we as as patients as the general public i'm sorry i forgot i have that on my machine um that's all right So clinical trials are important to that process. Absolutely. Um, we don't get new new products in the marketplace without that taking place. And, and for our listeners, um, this is a vitiligo community podcast, but we do talk about other um, topics. And this is one of those other topics I feel like it's important to us as human beings, not just those living with vitiligo. Um, we have members that have participated in clinical trials or that have been asked to participate. Um, I've never done any clinical trials for vitiligo. I've only done uh, phone discussions. Oh, okay. And with that, you know, it's, it's all about collecting the data. You know, that's very important. But we can't be afraid of participating. What are some of those myths that you hear people saying why they won't participate? Wow. Uh, a lot of it has to do with what what you were talking about earlier, that that there's a conspiracy to, right. to use people of color as guinea pigs. <laughs> right. That there's no real reason to do it, that there's no evidence that that one can rely upon um, I'm trying to think of, of some of the other things that, that people often say. It's just yeah. it's just a hesitancy around things that they don't understand. Right, right. Well, I, I know I've heard some of the what ifs. I get it. There's a what if with everything we do in life. Because you can have a what if I get in my car and I can get in an accident. That can happen. You know, if you participate in a clinical trial, there are certain uh, processes put in place to keep you safe. You know, if you read the information they provide you that details the entire study, you know the risk. Um, and, and I've I've participated in one or two that I said I would never do again. Is that right? And nothing bad is just there was one in particular I did just to give a little information. It it um, it made me. <laughs> this may sound crazy, but it made me feel like a drug addict. Um, it was oh, wow. and that was my first experience of getting a. a natural high off a drug and immediately took me to a high and then it put me to sleep and what oh, it, was, uh, it was for anxiety to to ease your anxiety if you're having an asthma attack oh interesting and it was an instant 
hit. Mm. And the world was spinning and it went sideways. If you're an old Star Trek fan, you know, when the, the spaceship got hit and everybody tilted and you're <laughs> trying to walk, that's what it was like. And wow. Um, and then shortly after that, I went to sleep and woke up four hours later and I said, oh my gosh, you know, and, and they said what there were side effects like that. So they <laughs> kind of prepared me for it, but they yeah. took care of us. They checked our vitals, make sure we were okay. Those of us that were in the study and right. but afterwards, I said, I don't ever mm. want to do this study again. Cause yeah. I said, I felt like an, a, a, a drug addict. I mean, it, it was that if I didn't know any better, they instant hide that somebody mm. that, who takes drugs and why they would enjoy that. But for me, it was like, uh-uh. yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. yeah it didn't deter me from doing another study. It mm. was just different mm -hmm. um, than what I expected. And right. I think sometimes that's where we get into this whole habit of, nope, I'm not doing that because they're going to do this or they're going to stick me with a needle and draw blood. Yeah, they will. Uh, or right? they're going to do this, yeah. but it's all for science and it's going to help you and it's going to help somebody else. It might help a relative. Absolutely. It, you know, we can't fear everything in this world. We can't. We cannot. I mean, there are too many risks to mitigate on 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 an average day Absolutely. that we don't think twice about. Um, and so we always have to keep this in terms of um, participating in, in clinical research in context as well. And to expect a guarantee is is not realistic. It's right. because, again, they don't exist. <laughs> um, but but when you do your risk calculus now, some of us are more risk averse than other. Right. Absolutely. But we also need to do a gut check to make sure that that what we're fearing is within the realm of of reason. <laughs> right, right. You know Absolutely. I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, speaking of risk, I, I want to move away from that. Uh, we know there are risks with trials and, and anything you do. However, what are the benefits? We sort of talked about the benefits of trials, but what are some of the other benefits? Once you get the data, um, like if somebody wanted to participate in one, mm -hmm. not talking about outside of the study, but within it, what are the benefits within the study? Well, first and foremost, um, you mentioned having access to better care. Mm -hmm. Free care. That's a, and free of charge. <laughs> right. Yes. So my company just, you know, to frame things, we never promote any study that expects the participant to pay. No. <laughs> that's that's a non sequitur. That's a they non. They should be paying a participant. Bingo. Always. Right. And they should be paying more. But that's probably right. a topic for another day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and there is no such thing as coercion, by the way. Uh, another topic for another day. Okay. Um, <laughs> so first and foremost, access to more intensive, more um, reliable, more consistent, more um, care from experts right. that you're not going to get in the free market, let's say. Absolutely. <laughs> um, being able to get things like, you know, blood pressure checks, um, CT scans that you're not ordinarily going to have. So you're going to be able to monitor your health right. in a way that you wouldn't be able to ordinarily. And you're able to catch right. things early, potentially, and, and not 
have to wait until things are, you know, more severe. Right. Absolutely. Because you didn't know. So having access to a clinical trial and the staff and, and the monitoring, I think, is, is hugely beneficial. Um, I love, well, personally, I'm, I'm nosy and I, I want to know how things work. Absolutely. Um, how my body works how things are connected in terms of cause and effect. I'm, I'm nosy about the scientific investigational process. I want to know, what are y'all doing back there? You right, know, absolutely. You know? <laughs> What's this all about? And they should answer that question. You have the right to know. Exactly. So don't feel like I can't ask because they're the professionals. Well, they oh, ask hit on any question, huge, right? Yes, you hit on a huge one. I love being able to control the pace of the interaction because as a clinical trial participant, you're really in the driver's seat right. because at any moment you can say, you know what? Mm, I changed my mind. Got to go. Right. And to your point, you're able to ask questions that they must provide responses to. Now, sometimes the answer is we don't know, by the way, it's research, <laughs> right. but to the extent that they have answers, it's incumbent upon them to provide those answers. Now, one of the sticky points, of course, as you know, is informed consent. Right. And the fact that quite often those documents are still very dense in terms of how they're worded right. and, and how, how it looks on the page and so forth. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. My company is, is also working with clients to kind of tease out what's germane, what's important, and put it in lay language so that we can ensure that people understand what it is they're signing. Right. Um, so that they can formulate questions to ask and they don't feel intimidated by all this medical and, by the way, legal jargon. Right. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done on that front. But you cannot move forward with being a participant without agreeing and, right. and signing this consent form. But make sure you read it, read it, read it. Even if, even yeah. if you don't understand it, still read it. And then right. maybe highlight what you don't understand. Highlight what you don't understand. Right. And, and even if you think it's a stupid question, ask your stupid question. Absolutely. And and they they will work with you in terms of making sure you understand what's going on. Um, I've had several times, I've had the study coordinator have to leave the room to go look something up or to go get the investigator. And they will come in and, and have the chat with me right. about whatever it is I've asked. But I have felt increasingly more empowered as a patient because of my participation in clinical trials. Absolutely. Um, I would also encourage people who are not in clinical trials yet to talk about the possibilities, to talk about what clinical trials are and how they might fit into their care options with their current provider, right. their healthcare Absolutely. provider. I have found in my own experience, I have never heard a clinician bring up clinical trials as, as an option. Oh, by the way, you know, right. you ever thought about ever? I'm right. always the one to bring that up. And we need more patients to say, okay, you're, pre you're prescribing this to me, but 
what is that based on? Absolutely. What, where's the evidence right. that this works in my demographic, in my patient demographic, in Black women specifically <laughs> for me? Right, right. You know? Um, and by the way, is there a clinical trial? Instead of prescribing this for me, is there possibly a clinical trial that I could participate in? And if they say, I don't know, then they're not paying attention. Right. We need more clinicians to pay attention to what the options are. And by the way, you know, there are opportunities, even if you don't get those answers from your healthcare provider, there are entities such as Clinical Ambassador, and I participate, um, to get help finding some opportunities to participate in studies, both for people who have specific conditions who've been diagnosed with those conditions and for healthy volunteers. And we right. can help walk people through that. Good, Allison, perfect, lean in. We're gonna lead right into this um, discussion. Tell us about your organization. Oh. Yep, perfect. Don't mind perfect if I <laughs> <laughs> So what we do is, is really create points of access in two directions. We want people who traditionally have not had access to clinical trials, um, to have that access, to feel empowered and entitled to a broader range of options. And we want to um, really remind people or expose people to the, the notion that clinical trials are a care option and not one that needs to be reserved for you know, the last ditch effort. Right. The thing, oh my gosh, nothing else has worked. I guess we'll have to go to a clinical trial. No, clinical trials can be explored early. And even if you don't have a condition. And we also want to make sure that we are holding industry's feet to the fire to make sure that when they design protocols and they conduct patient recruitment, that they're inviting the right people and right. the right demographic mix of people based on the prevalence, disease prevalence, of the therapeutic area that the study is based on. So for instance, if it's a diabetes study, um, we know that, that African-Americans, um, Native American Indians, Hispanic Americans um, often are disproportionately affected by diabetes. If you're only, if the study is only um, representing one or 2% of that demographic in its patient population, that's off kilter. So the percentage of people who are included in the study should reflect reality. Right, absolutely. And so that's our, our remit in terms of the company um, mission and making sure that industry doesn't have any excuses for not including us. Right, so absolutely. Say, you know, here are, are ways to communicate this message effectively with cultural relevance and resonance in those that you, you really need to include. So we're the, the liaison between communities and industry. Awesome. So if someone, said, hey, I want to participate in a trial, but I'm not sure where to start. How would they reach out to you? How would they contact you? 
Well, they can call us at 1-800-411-0511, the I Participate hotline, and we are available basically all the time. Uh, I won't get into... I don't know the extent to which your listeners are familiar with clinicaltrials.gov. Okay. But but that is the government's, the NIH's um, database of current okay. studies that have been approved. However, it's it can be difficult to navigate. Okay. And so oftentimes the studies that are listed do have numbers and, and contact people, sometimes emails okay. that you can use to reach out, but it's been problematic, consistently problematic. So part of the reason we have that hotline is to allow people to ask their questions, to feel comfortable um, getting help with, with navigating that right. system. And what we can do then is based on the information that they share with us, and it's always confidential, we can do a deeper dive to see what's available that might be appropriate for them and provide them with options. And we don't stop there. We also make sure that when that information is shared, that we follow up and provide them access consistently. So if they decide to participate in a study, they still have us kind of in the background as a support system? Before I ask the next question, um, can you give us that number again? Because I'm sure someone said, oh, I heard the number. I don't know where to find it. So can, <laughs> can you give us that number again, please? No worries. It's 800-411-0511. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Sure We're getting close to the end. However, I want to ask about the importance of finding support, finding a support system. Uh, you know, I'm a part of VitFriends, which is one of many support systems out there for people with vitiligo and their family and loved ones um, that support people with vitiligo. However, we still have a large community of people who feel like I don't need support or anything. And, and I talk about it often that it's not just about supporting people with our condition or any other condition. It's about supporting people as human beings because we all go through stuff. Um, can you just um, share your, your thoughts about support? And then we'll go to the next part, which is kind of wrapping things up. So support is, is critical because, as you know, we often feel alone, isolated. Am I the only one? Um, does this even make sense kind of thing and and having someone to toss concepts and ideas back and forth with or situations that that might arise so you don't feel like you're in a vacuum by yourself is critical and that's part of the reason we have the hotline so that if things come up people can can reach out right in real time and they're not expected to have to wait until, okay, something happens on Friday after five o'clock. Um, you shouldn't have to wait until Monday morning. Right, absolutely. To discuss it with someone 
or to have someone, you know, put your fears at risk or, you know, conversely to say, uh, you need to actually be calling 911. Right, right. You know, whatever that is, um, we don't want to create unrealistic expectations. We want to, to, to manage those expectations around what participating in a clinical trial should look and feel like. Now, obviously, each one is going to be different, right? but across all of them, there are consistent things that you should be able to expect, the chief among them being respect and, and, and the expectation that you are being heard by the clinical trial staff and that they respect you. Right. Absolutely. And, and treat you as a human, not just as a number. Absolutely. You know, yes. Yes. That's important. And I must say, um, the, the, the study I go to, um, or the clinical trial um, organization, they treat me as a person, as a human. I mean, just to reach out. And, or when I get there, just to sit and have a conversation, not about the study, not about what's going on with my condition, just to talk. And yeah. that makes me feel human. That makes me feel yeah. like they care about me, you know, yeah. and that allows you to trust them a little bit more. It's huge. Right. It's absolutely huge. Should we talk about how we met? Sure. Let's talk okay. about it. <laughs> because as you said that, part of the reason that um, that we did meet was because I was really taken aback by how much you were talking and how, to me, in my head, it translated into your comfort right. in that setting. And I was like, Wow. This is this is not something you hear every day. I got to meet this guy. <laughs> and, and, you know, Allison was funny. and compare notes. <laughs> you know, I have been going there for ten years, and and the way I found them was kind of interesting. I was picking my kids up from school, and I had just had a kind of major asthma attack. Oh wow! Didn't know what was going on with my body. I'm like, okay, I I know I had some challenges as a child, but as an adult, you know, I'm like, yo, what's going on? I'm falling apart. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's always the fear. It's like, wait, so, no, not yet. <laughs> I'm waiting for my kids to get out of school and I open up this paper and it big bold ad says, do you have asthma? Do you know how to treat your <laughs> asthma? But I said, okay, I closed it. I'm reading the rest of the articles, open it up again. I'm like, oh. uh, and it said, hmm. give us a call. Knock, knock. <laughs> so I called sitting there and I was just like, you know, I have asthma, blah, blah, blah. And they said, okay, let's have you come in on Monday and we can find out, you know, what's going on. Yeah. And that's when I met, you know, all the ladies there and the doctor and just, I don't know, they, they treated me like family and I've seen, you know, staff come and go, um, for many different reasons. Yeah. Um, but I've yeah. always talked to them, like they've asked me, so what are your interests? What are your hobbies? What do you like to do? And I'm sharing and they're like, well, what about your family? And I, you know, we talk about so many different things. And um, when I went in on Monday, which I wasn't going to do. Really? <laughs> and I said, um, let, let me call them up because I, I would like to have a refill of my, you know, prescription and call. They said, well, come in. What day of the week? I said, oh, let's do Monday at 10. They know I'm a seven o'clock person. Let me get there early so I can go home. Get it out of the way, right? <laughs> right. So I said 10 because I don't have to get up. But yeah. going there, just the conversation, you know, wasn't just all about my asthma and allergies. It was about me as a person, how are you doing? You know, what's going on? What's new? And vice versa, you know, I'm talking to them like 
we're friends and that's yes. how it feels with family. And that then, was clear to me. I was like, yeah, wow, he's yeah. very chatty. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, and I talked to pretty much everybody there. I, and um, and then when Dr. Dunn came in, we sat and talked, even after you left, oh, we wow. talked for about 30 minutes after just Not just surprised. conversation, you know, yes. and I've never really had the opportunity to talk to her. It was a great conversation, and we'll discuss that uh, a little bit later. But okay. even when the when Doctor LaForge was there, I mean, it's just a great. I, I don't know. I just really enjoy being there. Um, I think that's the blueprint for how it should look. Absolutely, don't you? Absolutely. Because yes. when you walk in, you shouldn't feel, "Oh my gosh, what's going to happen next?" You know, mm-hmm. oh, I'm nervous. No, that I was nothing nervous. You know, you're supposed to feel like you're in the driver's seat. Absolutely, and I do. And even from the emails I get, it's always, hey, how are you doing? Not about how's your asthma, is it under control? No, how are you doing? Yeah. That's important. Because yes. a lot of times we focus on the condition and not the human. Absolutely. And I love that, the fact that Jan addresses me by name every time. Absolutely. Hey, how are you, Allison? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking <laughs> of that, I walked up and I said, well, I'm here for my appointment. And the receptionist's like, hey, Mark, how you doing? I'm like, uh. You know, you remember my name? Yes. She's new. Recognize me in the mask? <laughs> right. But she's new. And she said, well, you were here last time. That was that study where I said it seemed like the world was spinning. Yes. So I guess you remember my comments. <laughs> but it was it's a family. It's a family yes. setting. And I think for anybody who decides to get involved with clinical trials, get to know the staff, talk to them. They are human beings also. Absolutely. And if you once you make that human connection, mm-hmm. I think you'll feel at ease going in and sharing and talking. Um, when I found out about what triggered my asthma, I'm like, seriously, I've been going to my doctor. He didn't say anything. Like <laughs> it, it was nothing, but they really focused on they honed the triggers, in. right? Mm-hmm. So when the springtime hits, they're like, hey, we need you to get on this. We need you to make sure you stay on your inhaler. Uh, right. Watch out for this because ragweed is high, tree, tree pollen is high, grass. <laughs> you know, and they really informed me, although I'm already looking on the online going, uh-oh, this pollen's coming. <laughs> but it really makes me feel human. It makes me feel like somebody Careful. cares. Yeah, right. I get it. But yeah, but that's how we met for our listeners. We met at um, the, the um, research he place. Go, um, he didn't really get into the details as to. Uh-huh. Wait a minute. <laughs> no, but no, no. Like, who is this bad. crazy woman popping in? Yeah, because <laughs> I did look like, uh, why is she talking to me? <laughs> right. Like, who is this? She's not a, a nurse. She's not a doctor. <laughs> She's another patient here, but she wants to talk. I'm like, okay, sure. Right. <laughs> And, and, and I'm like, carpe diem moment, okay? <laughs> but And I'm one of those people like, uh, who's this? But no, we, but we talked. And it was great because yeah. there's a purpose in everything. There is a meaning. I, I feel like there's no chance. It was lined up perfectly. We were supposed to meet. Yeah. We were supposed to talk. To to have this discussion about clinical trials and, and to help our community, and I said, yeah. which is my community, the vitiligo community, because there are trials out there and people are like, Mm-mm, I'm not doing that. So maybe we can change somebody's mind. Yeah. Come on in. The Come water's on in. fine. And plus, <laughs> you get always, although we said it should be a lot more, but sometimes you did get a nice little payday from it. Well, yeah. Yeah. And participants <laughs> ought to get paid. Absolutely. Right. Right. That's part of the equation. And fed too. So, hey, I'll put that out there too. They, if yes. you're there long enough, you'll get fed. 
<laughs> or if you say, by the way, got any snacks? <laughs> right, right. I'm hungry. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Allison, this has been a great conversation. Um, oh, we're no. about to wrap. I oh. know, I know. But if, if I need to have you back, I will. But okay. I want you to leave us with some words of encouragement for the listeners, and then I'll wrap things up. Okay. <sighs> I think it's important for people to think about access to clinical trials as a social justice issue, that we are only as good as the evidence that brings to, okay, let me start over. Clinical trials are, access to clinical trials is a social justice issue. And without representation, we are doomed to have and, and allow health disparities to persist. And we cannot expect change in that regard. We can't expect better treatments unless we're part of the solution. We can't sit back and go, oh, oh no, not me, right. you first. Mm -mm. That's not how it should work. That is not how it should work. This needs to be an all hands on deck proposition. And as many people as possible should consider participating. Absolutely. Allison, I thank you for those words of wisdom. Thank you for being here and sharing your knowledge for myself and for our listeners. You know, we do appreciate it on behalf of the uh, BitFriends community. So thank you, Absolutely. thank you, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, and you're welcome. You for listening to me ramble. Oh, <laughs> no, no, it, it was a perfect lead-in because we also need to hear need to hear the human factor behind it all. That's very important. It's so, crucial. yes, very I, much so. And for our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. You have been listening to Living Life and Love. I'm your host, Mark Braxton from Raleigh, North Carolina. So remember to look in that mirror and tell that person you see, I love you. Or take that selfie, turn it around, look at that picture and say, I love you. You'll take care. Have a blessed day. You have been listening to Living Life and Love with your host, Mark Braxton. This podcast was sponsored by My Vitiligo Team.